Local voices, local conversations. You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us once again here at NapaBroadcasting.com. The wine industry is both the lifeblood of our economy and in many ways sui generis to our wine region, but it's also part and even sometimes a reflection of the broader national and global economy. How then is the premium wine business doing in this economy? And what might the business tell us about our local economy and about the global financial landscape? For answers to these and a lot of other questions, we don't have to go to Davos, but we can stay right here in the Napa Valley and talk to our guest, Rob McMillan, who's the executive vice president and founder of Silicon Valley Bank's wine division, which has just issued its 17th annual State of the Wine Industry Report. And it is my pleasure to welcome Rob McMillan here once again. Rob, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be here. Thank you. It's good to have you here. As uh, we look at this year's report, and it seems like these years come uh, awfully quickly. (laughs) There's hardly a gap between one to the next. Talk a little bit first about some of the immediate sort of top-of-the-line things that, that you're finding that might be a little different this time around. Well, I'd say for your Napa listening audience, uh, the first thing that's different is um, is the, the personal impact that uh, the fires had on, on the report for, and, and me. Um, we, I live right next to Partrick Road, and mm. so we, we experienced the fires firsthand. We, we got out of it okay, but... Um, just like the rest of the Valley, everybody dealt with something and, uh, uh, the bank ended up, uh, being closed for a couple of weeks and, uh, our Sonoma office actually was closed for quite some time being right next to the, the Hilton fountain grove that burned to the ground. Um, and that stopped us from doing our normal survey. Uh, we typically send a survey out in October and that helps us look into, uh, it's primary research that helps us look into what's going on in the business. And that was, that was scheduled to go on October 12th. And the fire started, I believe the ninth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, uh, that changed the way we, we did the survey this year, but, um, we ended up, uh, I think coming together pretty well and we got uh, some pretty interesting information and some, uh, came up with some, some, I thought really good conclusions. So, but the, um, Top line conclusion is I would say the industry is doing well and that 2018 is going to be a good year for the industry in the Napa Valley. Of course, we've still got to deal with, um, uh, you know, saw you subdued tourism, if you will. And, um, the, you know, more, more or less, I think the, the fires are, are, are behind us, um, except for the, the, the human component of, of the homes and such that need to be rebuilt largely for the wine industry. We, we've come out of it pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then we'll figure out what happened with uh, smoke taint and, and any damage to vines uh, in the spring. On a, on a larger scale, I would say that um, there's underlying trends that are a little bit surprising. And one of them is that uh, when I, I looked at um, tasting room visitation, and uh, I noticed that it, there were declines that showed up in several of the major wine-growing regions, and it didn't really make sense to me because revenue was up and average average uh, per, per, per visitor uh, revenue was also up. And so it until I really saw this, uh, as it's a fourth or a fifth year in a row of visitation decline. I, finally, it, it became pretty clear to me that, that something was, was changing. And uh, what that something is, is uh, we have a rotation of, of consumers that's part of it. Uh, the boomers are starting to roll off. 
um, and they're hitting retirement. They're living on fixed incomes, and, and the young consumers are coming up, and they're um, and they're not quite able to uh, replace those boomers on a one-for-one basis, and so. It, It's causing some underlying changes. You mentioned tourism and and the slight decline as a result of the fire. Is there any kind of a clear nexus between tourism in the wine industry and how the business overall is doing in terms of sales? Well, there's clearly a a relation, a relationship. But the the interesting thing about that, if you look at Napa and Sonoma, tourism is up in both... uh, in uh, both counties, and as a matter of fact, prior to the fires, we had um, higher uh, higher visitation. Part, pardon me, um, higher room occupancy, mm-hmm. and uh, the average room rates were were up, and the the number of rooms that were available uh, also up. And that doesn't even count uh, when you add Airbnb into the into the mix. So tourism is is up. In, in both counties, and yet visitation is down, which is a, is quite a paradox. Mm-hmm. But the the re, the reality is is, is the the consumer is changing. So if you go back, oh, well, twenty, thirty, or forty years ago, if you want, uh, and you look at the behavior of somebody that would come up into the Napa Valley, they'd they'd come up, you know, with uh, for a weekend or whatever, and they might go to a tasting room without tasting fees. And uh, they would stop by, you know, on, on the way up the road, they'd stop by one winery and they'd, they'd throw a case in their car and they'd go to the next winery and they'd throw a case in their car and they'd go, you know, it was, it was very, uh, you know, very programmatic in the, in the way that they approach the business. It's wine tasting, wine buying. But today it doesn't work that way. There's a lot more... Um, a lot more wineries that are by appointment. So the consumer just doesn't wander up. They know exactly what they're going to do. They've planned it out. And and largely for the older consumers, they've been there and they've done that. They, they know the wine business if they're wine lovers. They know where they want to go. And they're probably predisposed to buying already. For the young, younger consumer, however, um, they're just not going to buy uh, if you if you have as an example in the Napa Valley, the reserve tasting fees uh, are on average sixty dollars. So, you know they they always travel in fours, and if you have four people together, that's two hundred and forty bucks for uh, you know for those reserve tasting fees. And the young consumers they can't afford it; they're not gonna they're not gonna pay it. So they're not gonna go to your tasting room unless you have some other way to uh, to attract them. And to the extent they come up to the to the Napa Valley or the Sonoma Valleys, they're doing something besides that. It, they might be doing something in outdoors. They might be uh, going to the Blue Note uh, or some other venue. They're, they're certainly looking for some place where they can have, you know, nice, uh, a nice dinner somewhere. Uh, so it's not just about the wine. It's not just about the, the winery anymore. It's not just about going to the tasting room. It's about an experience that encompasses the whole region. Mm-hmm. And what is the impact of the changes, and we've talked about this as these changes have been taking place in the past, the continuing change in distribution patterns for the wine business? Yeah, uh, it's uh, it, at this point, it's uh, 
it's I guess it's a foregone conclusion that the large distribution uh, that that used to be there for for the wineries, you know, back in the the 80s, let's say, and before that, um, has vanished. Uh, and as they've gone through consolidation in order to service nationwide accounts, um, they naturally have made the, the rational decision that they can't handle all these little accounts. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, uh, if you have a business and you're trying to uh, be efficient, you, at a point you just can't, you can't take on, uh, you know, the very smallest part of your business. That's probably the part that's uh, not making you the most money. So you, you just go up, you just scale up and you move, you move up scale, I should say. And you find those parts of the business that are making money and that's, that's what you stick to. So I think the distributors are making rational choices. The, the thing that the wine industry is blessed with is that we had the Granholm law pass, and I think it was 2008, which allowed um, direct shipping to consumers. Prior to that, we, we really didn't have that. We had 13 reciprocal states that we could ship to, um, but you know, largely the rest of the United States was, was off limits to buy. It was a, in many cases, it was a felony. Uh, you could uh, carry a concealed weapon in some states, but not, buy, not have a bottle of wine shipped to you. So today, that's uh, it's not not quite uh, normalized or, or sensible even, but it's uh, at least possible. Mm-hmm. And and talk about the impact that online sales and direct sales through online are having, particularly with millennial consumers? Yeah, it's, it, 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 at the end of, this is part of the end of my speech right now, <laughs> is when I, when I look at the wine business, we've gone through a period of time since, uh, let's call it, call it 2008, post-recession, where everybody figured out that we need to go direct to consumer. We couldn't go through distribution and everybody figured out that they need a taste room manager. They need a, a they need somebody else to manage um, a different skill set in the club. Uh, and today now we're up to the point where the average winery sells 60% of their, their wine direct to consumer. And the, and the, the math of that is we have visitors that come in, we convert 8% of those to wine club. We keep them for an average of 30 months. And then whatever, whatever that math is, that is the average value of, or the lifetime value of that consumer. And then you redo it. And the problem with that model is, as you start to press the edge of, of the sales you, you are selling direct, you're also burdening yourself with very high overhead costs, both in terms of salary and in the tasting room itself. These are, not inexpensive buildings. Um, and then you got to find more and more consumers and the competition for those consumers increases. So we're, we're kind of at this point where we've done a really good job going direct, but when you look at online sales in particular, online sales are only three or 4% of average wineries revenue. So online sales are actually quite small. And yet to your question, you know, the younger consumer in particular um, demands a shopping experience that's more varied. They may want to come up. Hopefully they do because they'll get a better experience. Uh, but uh, at a point, they actually just want the convenience of going online. And, um, and right now, that's a, that's a place that we're, we're missing the boat. 
And as these trends continue that you've been talking about, what impact is that having on pricing in terms of the business? The, the pricing component is probably a little bit different. You, you, when you look at what's happening with the rotation of 10,000 boomers a day that are retiring and, um, and then 10,000 millennial consumers who are replacing those boomers, um, you end up with a more uh, what's the word I'm looking at? A more frugal boomer, mm-hmm. and uh, and and used to drinking good wine, and you end up with the more frugal young consumer who is wanting to drink better wine. So it's a the premiumization concept. Uh, but what we have really now is we have the young consumer moving up market. We have the the younger consumer uh, moving down market. But both consumers are going to be frugal, and both are totally aware of, of what good wine is. So they're, they're going to be looking for premium wine that's of value. And so when you look at uh, right now, and you look at what's happening with, uh, with pricing in the markets across all the SKUs, there's virtually no price increases that are able to be passed on to the consumer. Um, I'm going to make this up, but, it, but it's good for just directional, because mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember the exact number, but uh, the, the, I just saw this report the other day about the number of, of uh, wineries that raised, uh, pardon me, the number of wine SKUs that raised prices in this last year. And I'm going to just say it was the top 100, and out of that top 100, it was four. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a number something like that in that, in that kind of magnitude, just to show you that the, the overwhelming majority of, of wine uh, SKUs just can't raise price right now. So um, that's, a, that's certainly a, uh, something that has to be factored in when you're thinking through all the costs that go into producing your wine. And one of the other things that you talk about in the report that's having this stabilizing or downward pressure on prices is an increase in imports and a better quality of imports. Yeah, and uh, you know when you when you look at the the older generation, the boomers, they were raised on premium wine out of Napa and Sonoma, um, but they they started probably like everybody else um, um, at a discovery level where they were drinking probably Bartles and James as a, as an entry point. Um, and, you know, the younger consumer is, is looking for, they're starting at a, at a, a little bit of a higher, uh, desire, if you will, they want a better quality product. And, and, uh, when it comes to the values that are out there, you have Australian, pardon me, not Australian, you have uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and Italian Pinot Grigio and French Rosé. Those are all wines that that kind of sell from the the eight ninety nine to fourteen dollar price point, and uh, the young consumer in particular skews pretty heavily toward those those lower premium price points. And those are those are good wines, and that's what we're teaching our our youngest consumers to drink are these are these foreign wines compared to the boomers who you know we started with uh, wine that was produced in California, but you know in the Central Valley and and more simple wines, if you will. And then we've just grown up with the, the, the premium wine in the North Coast. One might think that, that all of this pressure and all of this change taking place, this turnover, this rotation you're talking about, and the imports and all the other things we've touched on, is creating a greater need for consolidation in the business. Talk about what you're seeing in that regard. Well, there's... I guess it depends how you look at consolidation because 
consolidation is a sign of health in an industry because that means that you have buyers. Um, you know, if you, if you didn't have if you didn't have uh, anything that was for sale, you'd start to wonder, <laughs> um, and price would drop. Obviously, um, today we see some level of consolidation um, in terms of of wineries who are looking at certain SKUs, you know, let's call it mid-scale wineries that are adding certain SKUs and, and large ones as well. Um, but, you know, consolidation as a rule isn't happening from the standpoint of the number of, of brands and SKUs that are out there. The numbers of brands and SKUs are still growing, not mm-hmm. shrinking. Um, and the largest wineries now, uh, you know, I think it's the, the top, uh, was the, t- the top 26 represent 80% of wine shipments now. So, uh, you know, that, that part is already pretty consolidated in that top component that the, you know, the rest of it is, uh, you know, you look at the other effectively 9,900 brands that are out there and they got a, uh, they, they only get that 20% that's left. Um, and that, that really doesn't, it's interesting that it, that doesn't force consolidation at all. As a matter of fact, it's uh, it's probably the reason all those brands exist is because people desire to have that difference and there's difference in region and there's difference in varietal difference in type and, and it's the, the art the artistic component of it the, mm-hmm. I think it's uh, there's something earthy and beauty uh, and there's beauty in in an agricultural product and the simplicity of of that and understanding it um, but it, but even in a premium way it's Wine is a very strange product, and I'm not sure I can really understand exactly what, why it is what it is, because it's not Coke or Pepsi. Right. Do you see a decrease given all of this, and 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 given a leveling off of of sales, a decrease in the number of new winery startups that we might be seeing? Well, it's certainly more difficult in the North Coast. Um, you know, Napa's more or less planted out at this point uh, in the in the major areas. It's very difficult to get a, a wine permit these days in the Napa County. And uh, finding exceptional land to plant on is, is equally difficult. Uh, planting in the hills requires years of effort, and you have to go through environmental impact reports. Right. It's just uh, – so you're, you're not going to see a, a lot of – growth from that standpoint, um, more likely uh, you're going to find uh, somebody just ready to sell their wine and somebody with uh, a fair amount of money willing to buy that that winery. And that would be a way a new person might enter the market. New brands are uh, in Napa and Sonoma that are that are estates. Those are, those are kind of hard to come by. You can always start a brand, though, without an estate, just do custom crush. What's happening right now is the, the growth opportunity is actually up in in Oregon and Washington. With with um, right now, um, uh, Oregon in particular uh, is growing about seventeen. They grew about seventeen percent last year, um, largely uh, largely Pinot Noir and, and you know the the quality of Pinot Pinot Noir in, in uh, the Willamette Valley is in, incredible, um, and so the values are there. And when you're talking about Premium and value combined, and they're they're square in the in the, the middle of that that consumer preference. So that's that's where you're seeing the growth right now is uh, both uh, both Oregon and Washington. Mm-hmm. 
We talked about imports. What about the other way around? Are we seeing more international buyers trying to enter the market here in the North Bay? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we still have uh, the dominant consuming country in the world when it comes to wine. We drink more wine than anybody. And, you know, that puts a, a bit of a target on our back for for other countries. Um, I get a chance to go speak in other countries and I, I talk with, with folks in, in other countries to get an understanding at the same time of, you know, what is it that they're trying to do. And, you know, when you look at what's happening in Europe, as an example, they're having declining per capita consumption. They used to have very high levels of, of uh, per capita consumption. And, and uh, I'm going to say it's probably dropped probably in half at this point over the last 30 years. Um, and so you got to do something with that extra production, you either rip out vines as they, as they had done um, throughout the early 2000s. Um, uh, or, you know, you, you figure some other way around it. They, they turned it into, uh, you know, they would distill it or, you know, turn it into some level of industrial alcohol at times even. Um, but that's not a very profitable, profitable way to go. And the interesting thing about, uh, about, uh, many of the countries in Europe is that they have actually a prohibition against advertising alcohol. And, uh, you know, it just makes it even more difficult on them. So, so much more the hunger that they have to export. And uh, many of the countries um, in Europe right now uh, have wine companies who are, are looking for a footprint over the United States. They'd like to find, a, uh, you know, some way to maybe buy a few wineries to to roll up and uh, and be of a significant enough size that they can attract the distributor's attention. They can't get that distribution that they want. They can't crack this market. And so, you know, maybe buying a property over here might be a, might be a way that they can get, get some feet on the ground and, and, and maybe make that happen. And I, I'm talking to many right now, European uh, consortiums that are, that are looking at purchasing something in the, in the Napa Sonoma valleys, and but it, it, to include Oregon and Washington as well. Mm-hmm. Is there any talk or any projected impact or much thought within the industry given to what might be the impact of the recreational legalization of cannabis? It's you know there's mixed research that's out there. Um, you know, I was up at the Unified Wine Conference in Sacramento at the end of uh, end of January, and there was a report that was released. Uh, from uh, University of Connecticut um, in, in collaboration with a few other universities throughout the world. And uh, their conclusion was the legalization of medical cannabis had impacted wine sales, I think they said 15%, in the regions where, in those counties where cannabis had been legalized. Intuitively, it, it doesn't really make sense to me because... Um, if you go just start from the, the date where medical marijuana was approved, um, each of those counties and each of those states have to go through different levels and, and processes to make cannabis available, uh, whether that means you have to go get cards or, you know, the county might have to decide, uh, you know, how many uh, how many places will be allowed to distribute. There's all, you know, it's just... It's not it's not binary where 
it's all allowed. And, uh, and so it, it did, it doesn't make sense to me to see a 15% drop from the, from the day that, uh, medical marijuana is available. And I think the real, the real proof would be looking at recreational pot, uh, where it's far more available. And then also recognizing that, you know, pot's been around for a while. So it, again, it's not a, on, on, it's not a binary thing. It's not on and off where it becomes available and you see a decline in, in sales or, or less growth in sales, if you were, if you'll look at it that way. But um, from everything I can tell, after looking, after looking at the research, after getting some proprietary uh, information from, from others, uh, uh, from state records and mm-hmm. from both uh, Washington and, and Colorado, when they had recreational cannabis legalized, um, there really wasn't much of a, change in terms of, of wine consumption. Intuitively, I, I, I think fine wine and, and recreational marijuana really have different social uses largely. It's not to say you can't have a pot party or you can't have a, a wine party, but we're still probably away from uh, having restaurants that allow you to light them up and, uh, and you know, pair uh, San Similian with your salmon right. um, <laughs> or something like that. It, it is a different social purpose. And, and so as, I, as far as I can see, um, the, the research that seems credible to me suggests that the, to the extent that there's a substitute for medical marijuana or for, for recreational marijuana in particular, uh, it's probably at the low price uh, beer segment. Right. Um, that's where that's where you might find uh, you know somebody coming home and instead of drinking a six pack of beer and just decompressing at the end of a hard week, maybe they just light one up and uh, and get stoned instead. <laughs> and so that that makes some sense to me intuitively, but but still, jury's still out. And and finally, put your banker's hat on and talk a little bit about how all the things that we've been talking about impact how you see the industry, how the bank will, will deal with the industry, how lending may or may not change, and just how you see the, the overall health of the business as it relates to, to the bank. The, the industry is, as I mentioned right at the beginning, we're going to have a good 2018. And one of the things that it's important for me to do, and I, I think there's, there's others in the, in the industry that do it as well, but you've got to find ways to look out over the horizon because this is a, an industry that changes over a very long period of time. And so that's what I try to do is, is put on uh, some binoculars and figure out, look out over the horizon. So not just this year, but you know, what's going to happen in the years following. And, and so it would be frightening to me if I believed that the boomers who today still represent the largest component of consumption uh, we're going to, you know, drop through the floor and their consuming patterns and their buying patterns, you know, wanting to spend less. Um, and the young consumers, you know, not having a way to spend more. That would, if, if we were already marketing to that whole base of population, then I, I would be worried. But, you know, if we get on the, on the stick here and, and start to, change the way we view sales. So we're not asking people to just walk into the wine club or pardon me. We, today we ask people to just walk into the winery and if they don't walk into the winery, they're not our customers. Mm-hmm. 
which is kind of crazy. Um, we need to evolve our thinking so that our customers, our potential customers, are wine drinkers, not just wine club members. And so that's the evolution that I'm proposing our industry starts to adopt and evolve. We need to use new digital mechanisms to uh, to market. Uh, you know, it's some of the stuff that's happening in retail and, and has been happening for a while, but we're a little bit late, late adopters. But, you know, using retargeting, Google Analytics, big data, um, and, you know, em- employing those, those uh, retail strategies so that we can maybe increase the amount of online sales and, and we'll have to change the way some of our consumers are experiencing wine because they're still looking for an experience. Um, but I think we can still have an experience, you know, just, just digitally. And, and just to just that for a second, people have been saying for a very long time that you can't sell luxury goods, you know, luxury cosmetics, luxury um, eyewear or leather, whatever. You, you can't sell that online. That's what the luxury industry has been saying for a very long time. And yet, uh, the this this research that came out here just the end of this year from Bain um, suggests that by 2025, 25% of all luxury sales will be online. So the wine industry can get there too. We can we can improve the opportunities to sell using the tools that exist. We just have to bring in some some new consumers in some in some new ways, and and I think the industry will, will be fine and continue on and and uh, evolve into its uh, its next iteration, as it always has. Rob McMillan, he's the executive VP of, and founder of the Silicon Valley Bank's wine division. They've just issued their 17th annual State of the Wine Industry Report. Rob, it is always a pleasure and informative, and I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me again, Jeff. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio, for the way we live now.